Amen. Yeah, don't get to press record on that uh, on that computer. All right. Well, good morning. Um, I'm Sam. For those who don't know, and I get the privilege of uh, being God's messenger today. So, we've been going through a series called Sacred Assembly, and uh, I don't know if you would have heard us preach this kind of series when we first started because. Well, just for lots of reasons, but uh, we are now, and I think it's a, actually a very, very important series. Uh, it'll be important to have for the future, to, for future reference. You have a study guide that's been made for you. We're trying to do this with all of our series, and uh, it is available in the back. If you don't have one, they're free. Just take them, um, and then obviously the, uh, the sermons will be online. We have one for James that we did, and we'll have one for Habakkuk, which we'll do next. So um, by all means, please, uh, please get one. Um, in the uh, three years of our existence, and we've been uh, just, just over three years now, uh, we've had a lot of people come into our gathering and a lot of people go. Imagine if you had everyone stay who had ever stepped foot in Damascus Road, it would be uh, packed out for several services. And I trust, um, although it's hard sometimes, I trust, as Matthew 16:18 says, that Jesus is the one who plants a church, and the rest of Scripture says that Jesus is the one that builds and grows and even shrinks uh, and changes and even kills off churches when need be. And I never quite, though, uh, get used to that, especially as people come and go. Some people have been here since the beginning. Since the uh, days where we sat in a circle in my living room, uh, the days where we sat in a musty garage with black plastic, looked like some kind of emo concert, and it was a little freaky, but there have been people who have stayed since the beginning. There have been people who started with us in that group who have left. There have been new people who have come, and they have stayed, and others have come and gone just as quickly. I found that um, the people who get most excited about what you're doing at church and run up, not that they run up, but have conversations in the after about how excited and wonderful are usually the people that are the quickest to leave. So I don't get so excited anymore when they tell me they'll be here next week. Um, Some of those who have left, though, maybe visited us, have left and then come back, and others I've never, ever seen again. And uh, that's hard. But since we've started, we've seen everything from uh, non-Christians, new Christians, churched Christians, unchurched Christians, de-churched Christians, whatever that means. It's a new term now. Um, Over-churched Christians, but a lot of different kinds of people. And many of those who have come to our church have come with their own agendas, usually legalistic, uh, their own expectations, usually fairly unrealistic, and then many come with their own previous church experiences, which are generally horrific if you listen to them and how they tell them. Everyone, though, comes with their own story, this kind of history of whether they've been in the church, not been in the church, their experience with church or Christians, And when those stories of bad church experiences come, they're often told from uh, their own perspective, and you hear about the big bad church and the evil elder around the corner that was mean or wronged or misunderstood them or hurt them in some way. And because, and this is 
just a bit of, of revelation, I guess, to, to you. Because when you first start a church, you're so desperate to have people stay. Like you want just the 14th person when you have 13, and you want the 20th person when you have 19. And so when someone comes in and tells you about this experience, the whole time you're like, oh yeah, that's just terrible. I can't believe that. And, and you affirm, not knowingly necessarily, but because you want them to stay and to like you so much, you end up affirming everything and every experience they share with you and pretty much throwing the church leadership or whatever church you happen to hear about under the bus. And it's not to say that there aren't bad churches or bad experiences that are genuine or bad leaders. It's to say that every truth, I'm sorry, every story, it seems, it has half-truths in it. And I've learned that as I've heard a lot of these stories, and I've heard a lot, and I've affirmed a lot, probably to my shame, I've learned that there's much more oftentimes to every story and quite often quite often but not always but quite often the church leadership that they're talking about was right all along not always but it's humbling now to know very humbling that there are people who have left our church and are now those same people telling stories to those other churches and I wonder what they're doing. Are they affirming? Are they asking questions? Are they throwing us under the bus? But there are stories that are out there, I'm sure, about Damascus Road and about Sam Ford and the elders at the church. And I wonder what they sound like. So as this third part of this five-part series called Sacred Assembly, and the series itself is we're trying to say, look, everything aside that's not important, all the stuff that church is, from Awana to kids' ministry to a building, to, to music, all the stuff that we have that kind of makes up what this church thing, culture is. We take all the preferences and all the extra aside. What do we have to have for a church to be a church? And then what makes a good one biblically, not according to our preferences? And so today's is leadership. Leadership, of which I am. And the reality is people don't trust leadership today. That's kind of our, our, the natural kind of tendency for us. And it, it makes sense because if you look in the world, even outside of a church context, whether it be business or politics or sports, whatever happens to be, leaders are really hard to find today. Just when you think a guy is a, a good leader, a good example, has good character and whatever, and then he does something, you're like, holy cow, are you kidding me? And it becomes to be darker and darker. And so I understand that there are very, it's very hard and very rare to find solid leaders today in the church and outside of the church. And so what I think that's done to us, and I include myself as this, is that we're very quick then to assume the worst about leaders, maybe about churches, and always the best about someone who's claimed to be hurt or ignored or whatever. That was what my tendency was. Automatically, it must be the other person's fault that you're talking about. I can't believe... You were treated that way. And because many people leave churches because of bad leaders and old leaders and young leaders and immature leaders and stuffy leaders and legalistic leaders and abusive leaders and private leaders who don't share their heart, 
we find a bunch of people, a growing number of people that are rarely satisfied with any leaders. And so a lot of people come and go. They assess me or the leaders or the leadership on a website or whatever really quick, and they leave. Others stay, and they still don't like leadership, never will like leadership, haven't liked leadership for some time, but they spend time sucking the energy out of all the leaders in the church, being skeptical and asking questions and constantly wondering why we're doing what we're doing. Energy vacuums, if you will. They don't really like leadership. But this leadership aversion, and I've talked about this in the last couple sermons, you see a lot of new communities kind of spawning and being born. And a lot of this is coming out of this leadership aversion because they believe in a flat structure, that leadership doesn't impede real genuine relationships. If I know you're leading me, That changes it, and I don't like that. And so you have these new emerging kind of groups out there that are saying, we need no leaders, we shouldn't have pastors, we're all a priesthood of believers, we have no elders, no deacons, heck, we don't need membership, none of these things, we're just going to be a a group together. And I will not argue, and I'm not trying to argue, that there are sinful men who have done sinful things in leadership. They've done bad things. That is... A given. But I will argue that leaderless churches are not the solution to that problem. In fact, I would say that not only is having a leaderless church stupid, I mean just flat out dumb practically because it will lead to all kinds of chaos, I believe, theologically, personally, relationally. It's also unbiblical. So no group, just in a real practical way, can, I think, continue for any amount of time and have any amount of impact without some form of leadership to unify around an identity and unify around a mission, who we are and what we do. And someone in the group, because it will happen, people have conflict, someone has to manage the conflict, someone is going to have to protect the shared values and make sure that they're pure and they're purely expressed Someone's going to have to judge between disputes. But even if that wasn't the case, even if it wasn't just like practical, because I don't think we need to bring every wise business thing that the world creates into the church necessarily, but even if it wasn't just practically wise, it's God's Word. And our decisions are based on God's Word, and God's Word has declared that God's people are to be led by godly men. So I'm going to read a verse here that's going to disturb some of you. Maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you've never read it before. And it's going to disturb you for all kinds of reasons and make you feel all kinds of ways and ask you why you feel that way. Hebrews 13, 17 is where I'm going to start. And it says something about leadership. And it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And now all your emotions and bad experiences with me or others is coming to your mind. And my question is, why do you feel that way? Because I know when we hear the words obey and submit to your leaders, it causes something in us. It causes us to react in some way and not generally positive. 
And I ask you, what governs you? Is it what you feel? Is it what you think? Or is your experience that you've had in the past? Or is it going to be God's Word? Because I realize obedience, obey your leaders, submit to them, sounds strong and hard. And I think actually that our feelings or our aversion to that idea of leaders, what that means, leaders you actually have to like, not just a title, but it means something. I think that our reaction to it has more to do with what's inside of here than anything out here. I think it has everything to do with the sin in us. And here's why I believe that. In truth, since the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God has always been about authority and roles and structure. We like to believe in the Garden of Eden that things were just kind of loosey-goosey, just as we believe the New Testament church, like everyone was loosey-goosey and no problem. It's not biblical and it's not right. God put Adam and Eve in a perfect garden, a house, if you will, that he built and said, these are the rules and these are the roles. Adam, you are to work. You are to build and grow and protect and take care of all this. That's your job. Don't eat the fruit. That's the rule. Okay, Eve, your job is to help Adam do his job. And don't eat the fruit. Perfect parent, giving rules and structure. Respect for authority was part of the creative order. And the brokenness of the creative order, sin came in because men rejected and rebelled against God's authority that structure, if you will, that he put into place. And God didn't leave them. He certainly gave them hope, which was his whole plan in Jesus Christ. And as that family, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob grew, and they go into Exodus, and they're redeemed from Egypt, what we see is God bring them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law to say, all right, you guys are broken. Now we're going to put into place some rules, if you will. We give you the covenant that's going to govern our relationship. And it gives them the Ten Commandments. Probably have heard of those. Bet you can't say them all. But maybe you can. It's funny how much we argue to have them in banks and, and on parks, and half the people, most of the people, don't even have them in their own homes. But, well, make sure it's in the, in the courts, because that will make us follow them. Wrong. Now, Ten Commandments, the first four, were about relationship with God. Right? Have no other gods before me. Make no images. Don't take my name in vain. The Sabbath. Relationship with God. The last six were about relationship with each other. And the first of those six, the fifth commandment, isn't it interesting? Given to adults is to honor your father and mother. Specifically it says, and I believe verse 12 of Exodus 20, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother. And he wasn't necessarily saying, hey, seven-year-old man, make sure you obey your 104-old father and obey everything he says. What he was trying to restore, just as he was with the Sabbath and with coveting and all these different things, was an order of things. And in this case, it was authority. He wanted to reaffirm, if you will, the inherent authoritative structure that exists in all of creation and the design for his people. But we don't like authority because of sin. The, the idea of someone telling us what to do is difficult. How do I know? I have kids. I have rarely, if ever, seen my son say, Father, 
thank you for instructing me that I may obey you in this way. Glory to God that you have these rules for me that I really don't want to follow, but my desires are... I mean, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Why? Because I learned from nine months old that my son was rebellious. He could tell what my rules were very easily. And so authority and submission to that authority is not only completely countercultural, it's in some ways counterintuitive to our nature. Sinful nature. We don't like it. And so when the Bible speaks truth, which is the authority that governs all of us, I'm going to assume that, whether you believe it or not, it is. God's Word governs this entire world and universe. And so when you read something and it rubs you the wrong way, or you don't like it, doesn't feel good, newsflash, that has nothing to do with God's Word and everything to do with your heart. But we approach it as if something's wrong with it, and that's not the case. And so, if you ever read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 is a great scripture that a lot of people like to appeal to to talk about the brokenness of the world. And what it does is maybe lay, it, lay out how God passively allowed the world to destroy itself. They deserve His active wrath. They deserve to be killed and wiped out. But He basically, like a father who basically says, I love you, son, but I'm not going to protect you in any way, lets them go and do what they want, fill their bellies with candy and stay up to late hours. We see the damage and the consequences. And so that's what Romans 1 says. So let's see what happens with a rebellion man and so what he does. And so he lays out, and a lot of people go to Romans chapter 1 and be like, yep, homosexuality. They pick that one and go, look how terrible that is. Murdering. What horrible thing that is. And we, we, we use that chapter, which I think it should be used, to declare what is right and wrong, good and bad and sinful. I think that is good. But there's things we ignore in there that are quite interesting. It talks about the rebellion of our hearts. Notice in Romans 1, verse 28, says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, broken, rotten, dirty mind, right? To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder, yeah, those terrible, terrible people, and strife and deceit and maliciousness and their gossips and slanderers and haters of God. Wow. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. That seems odd. Haters of God and murderers and disobedient to parents. Kind of simple, isn't it? No. Because God is speaking much more about what the disobedience to parents reveals about our rejection of all authority and God's creative order of authority. When my sons obey me, not only do they honor me, they honor God. We had that discussion the other day. It didn't go too well with them. I asked if you love me. That's how it started. Do you love me, son? Yes. You know what the Bible says love is? That I kiss you and stuff? No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says... Loving someone means, or loving God, I should say, is obedience, right? So when you love God, you obey Him. I understand that. Well, guess what God also said? Honor your father and mother. Oh, it means you got to obey me, right? Right. It shows you love me, right? Right. What does it also show? That I love God, right. The parents that God has put in our life, or the authorities, the pastors, if you will, even, that God has put in our life, these structures... It's not about honoring them as much as it's about honoring God, if that's what God has declared. 
which should be tested and we'll see. But it's very hard for us because it requires an incredible amount of humility. And humility is everyone's problem. If you remember Jim's sermon, he talked about Philippians 2. Have this attitude, which is the humility of Christ, which we all struggle with. That's why Christ died, because we struggle with it. That's why we grab onto his humble work, because we suck at it. And we say, I am not humble. Every single one of us says we're not humble. But respecting authority takes the humility of Christ, and he will give it to us and empower us with it. So who has the authority in the church then? Let's see God has... What has God said about the authority in the church? He said that the plurality of elders do. These guys called elders. Now, even in the Old Testament, you had elders. You had men that were selected to lead the tribes. You had men who helped to shepherd and judge the people of Israel. And not only was it smart, because if you see, when Moses gets out of Egypt, he has these thousands of people, and he goes to Midian to see his father-in-law, his father-in-law watches as Moses goes and judges all these people, makes decisions 24 hours a day. Like, no, he's right, you're wrong, nope, give him the cow. And like all these decisions, right? For thousands of people, and Jethro looks at him and goes, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. So he says, pick leaders. And so practically, it's just smart. He picks leaders, and he empowers them with the authority to judge, and they only go to Moses with the major things, the most important things. But... The truth is, it's not just because it's good, it's because God has declared their structure. When you see Jesus come, he picks 12 disciples. And even in those 12 disciples, he leads them, they will be the foundation, the leaders of his church, minus one. And then even within those 12, there are three guys, Peter, James, and John. And even within those three, there's one guy who will lead. There's structure and there's order. And once Jesus dies and rises from the dead, if you just follow the story of Scripture, you see that as they begin to plant churches in the book of Acts and basically spread the gospel in these different towns and different cities, here's what Paul says in Acts, I'm sorry, Titus 1, 5 through 9. He's writing to a young pastor, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It says, what kind? Well, if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the solution is not to have no leadership when bad leadership shows up or you have a bad leadership experience. The solution is to have the right kind of order which comes from biblically qualified leadership. And there are qualifications and we'll hit those in our spring series in Timothy very hard. But as as we confess, which I think we have to do, that men have screwed up, that men have, you've had bad experiences with bad leaders, that they don't lead the church perfectly, we mustn't abandon the need for biblical leadership. The Bible clearly states that pastors of the local church are protectors and providers and guides who exercise the authority of Jesus, not their own. And they're supposed to do with compassion. 
And the problem is, if you lose either authority or compassion, you have either disorder, disorder or abuse. I recognize that. You have to have both. But Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. And that, I know we've said that. We have it on our website. And it sounds really clever. Like, mm, what's that mean? Well, it means flat out this. The buck stops with Jesus, the Word of God. Which means that everything that we do, everything that I preach, should be tested by Scripture. You don't listen to Sam because Sam is something special. You test Scripture to see what Sam says. Acts chapter 17, I believe, as Paul is preaching, this group of people called the Bereans in Thessalonica are testing everything to make sure what he's saying is true. You should do that. We are submitted and should be submitted under Scripture, governed by Scripture, the Word of God, Jesus Christ incarnate. Now, the problem comes in where we go, well, within the local church, don't we have our own interpretations of things? And we get to a verse where we go, well, what does that mean? And we've discussed it and shared, and we go, well, who decides what that means for this body? The elders do. That's who does. Which means we don't run a democracy, which is very difficult to think about. We don't take votes. We're governed by Scripture, and we're led by men who are governed by Scripture, who are guided by prayer, and the plurality of elders make judgments. They make difficult judgments, hard judgments. Like, should a couple get divorced? Is this divorce biblical? That's a fun one. Well, isn't it clear? Do they have an affair? Do you really think it's that simple? I did. And then I had to deal with it. And then you're reading all kinds. I read everything about marriage in the Old Testament. I read everything. And we sit down to plurality elders and we say, what do we do? Well, the simple way is to go, oh, that's what the verse means. Literally, just go with it. That's what the legalists do. The liberals say, doesn't matter. Do what you want. The hard part is to sit in Scripture and pray in Scripture and discuss and go, all right, we're going to make a judgment. Why? Because we're going to be held accountable. And come down and say, you can divorce. You cannot. Well, let's take a vote. 200 people, 175 say, yay, divorce. 25, no. Doesn't work real well. And that's not how Scripture dictates we should. The elders have the wonderful and terrible privilege of making judgments. And it's hard. It's very hard. And so you go, well, so I have to trust your judgment, Sam. I have to trust, as a member of the church, your judgment and Mark's and Chris's and Aaron's and Jim. i got to trust you guys' judgment? Yes, you do. As a member of this church, yes, you do. Within the plurality of elders, under the lordship of Jesus. Now, the reason why is because I don't believe God wants a bunch of pansy leaders just going with the winds of change and whatever's popular at the moment. He wants soldiers who are willing to charge the hill and battle and to draw lines and to pick the right hills to die on. Who wants a leader that sits at the bottom of the hill and is like, I think we need to go this way. What do you guys think? Let's take a vote, huh? What do you think, huh? Well, I don't know. you got a pretty good argument. Maybe we shouldn't go up the hill. That's the last kind of leader you want. I don't want a leader like that. 
I also want a leader that goes, let's go, guys. I know it looks totally crazy. Ah, it just goes. There's got to be a leader who leads, governed by Scripture, prayerfully guided by the Holy Spirit, within a plurality so he's not by himself, polarized around one guy, not wise, but you do want a group of leaders and men who lead, who are not pansies. Timothy is taught by, by Paul, we'll go over this when we study it, he says these things, patiently and with gentleness, do these things, reprove, rebuke, exhort, teach, charge, lead. We need leaders. The question is, not whether the church should have leaders, but what kind of leaders. And again, the scriptures provide a very clear description of the kinds of men who are called to be elders or overseers of the church. And to con- be considered for eldership. It's not like some guy can go, hey, I think I should be an elder. It begins with a man who exhibits the highest of Christian character according to the qualifications of Scripture. In other words, just because someone's a really nice guy, just because someone is very wise or very educated or charismatic and a fantastic speaker, just because that guy's all these things doesn't mean that he's actually God's guy. Which is hard because I've had people, there are people in this church way more educated than I am. And automatically people go, well, that guy probably should be an elder. Why? Well, he just knows all this stuff. That's not what the Bible says. He very well may be qualified. But we don't just go, well, that guy's really nice. I like him. It makes me feel good. He must be an elder. And it doesn't mean that God's men are perfect. They're not. We're not. It does mean, though, that they're qualified. And if qualified, they should be trusted, obeyed, and submitted to, like Hebrews 13 says. So who's qualified? Who determines who's qualified? Who picks them? The elders within the local church, which is difficult when you have disagreements about that, not amongst the elders, but with other people who may should think. But we go according to Scripture, with shared wisdom, and we pray. And we do, some things are no-brainers. Like, I've had a conversation with a guy who came to our church after two weeks, sat down on my, uh, my couch and said, yeah, well, if I'm going to be an elder here, then I go, what, what? You're serious. You're not even joking. And I said, and it's not to say that you're not called to be an elder. Maybe you are, but I've only known you for two Sundays and two weeks. My church doesn't even know who you are. I could say your name. People go, who? So there's some practical, like, let's just spend time here to see if you love these people. But 1 Timothy 3, again, which we'll study, and you can read yourself, and Titus 1 give very specific things. And they give a list of qualifications that tell you who these guys are who are leading. Now, there are interpretations on those things. And the reality is, the elders determine whether they're qualified or not. Now, what I'd like to do, instead of going through every one of those kind of specific character qualities. It's just to kind of show you, if I can, my heart a little bit on what, and I am speaking for the elders, and they haven't seen the sermon. Mark heard it, Chris heard it first service. But I think I represent, and I hope I represent, the heart of the elders of this church. 
so you can understand why should I obey and submit. Not only does the Bible say so, but can I trust you? A couple things. Number one, we are leaders who aim to be worthy of imitation. We don't live for the approval of men, but we live to be imitated because, and rightfully so, you should be watching us. You should be. When we put a guy up for elder candidacy, we say, watch him. Watch him as a dad. Watch him as a husband. We want to know what this guy's like. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. A real quick, simple summary of an elder's call is to nurture his relationship with God, number one. Second is to maintain his household wealth. Third, to teach and defend the truth so that he can manage the church and shepherd the people and provide an example of godly living. And I believe God equips those he's called. So in other words, as we assess somebody or see whether someone has the traits... They're not things to be developed as much to be identified in an individual. And some of the qualifications, as I said, you go, well, how do you know if someone's a manager of their household? That's open to interpretation. Certainly is, but we're not taking a vote. The elders have the responsibility to judge that and will be accountable if they're wrong. You won't be. The elders will be. And so we make judgments about the callings of individuals. Just because someone has a desire. I assess church planners all the time. First thing we tell them is say, there's a difference between a desire and a call. We're trying to figure that out right now. And so when I was the elder, they go, well, you were the elder first, right? So you just kind of made yourself an elder. Lay hands on myself or whatever you do, right? I went through the Acts 29 assessment where I had men Successful church planners, leading churches, elders of churches, affirm my call. Test me. Assess me. And then we assessed others. And right now we have five elders. We have myself, Jim Fickert, Aaron Wartiz, Mark Hoxo, and Chris Rich. Those are the elders of your church, if you didn't know. You should get to know them. You'll see Chris doing announcements. You see Jim preaching every now and then, working with kids. You see Mark preaching every now and then. Aaron's all over the place and knows everybody. You probably all know Aaron. It's my guess. But those are your elders. And they have been deemed qualified and equipped. And our rule, our basic rule is this. This is how I determine whether we can even begin to look and see if this person's qualified. If I die... Can I have told my sons, follow that man. Follow that man to know what it means to be a son of God, to know what it means to be a husband who is godly and loves his bride like Jesus loves the church, to know what it means to be a father who reveals the Father, God, to his children, to be a member of the community. Can I do that for my daughters if I die? Can I say, you want to know what kind of husband to find? There you go. Follow these men. And I can say with a clear conscience, all of our elders, that is true. That's true. And I can rest and be at peace with that, that you can follow these men. 
And if they don't even meet that one to begin with, I won't even bother. Second, we are leaders who have a responsibility and see our responsibility to protect. Like shepherds who protect their flock from attacks that come from outside but also inside the flock. The truth is constantly under the attack and the elders are the ones with the responsibility to speak the truth in the church. In other words, doctrine's important. If you read the letters to young pastors like Timothy and Titus, doctrine is important. Doctrine is the basis for all relationships. It gives us an understanding what the nature of a relationship is, what love is, It is the foundation for all things. And so, us men, leaders of the church, we love the gospel, we protect the gospel, and we guide people toward the gospel. Acts 20, 28 says this, Paul speaking to leaders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come into the church among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. First and foremost, our men must be Bible thumpers. They must love the Scriptures. And to remind them of the responsibility, we give each elder when we install him a sword. Mine's way cooler. I didn't have one. No one gave me a sword, and so I gave them. They have Roman gladiuses, and they're really pretty cool looking. And they got me this sword uh, last year, I believe, on my birthday. And this hangs on my wall in my office at home, at least when my son isn't taking it off the wall and running down the street with it above his head like this, and it's like twice the size of him, which was kind of scary and did happen. But... This reminds us what our responsibility is to protect, to protect you. That we are not just here with title and some kind of entitlement we think we deserve. We are here with a responsibility to protect you. And occasionally, our responsibility is to protect the truth from you. Which is hard. Within our church... Within all the people that come, there are wolves. And it's responsibility of all of us, but in particular the elders, to protect the truth and cut off the head of any wolf. Why? Because they will lead the disciples away from the church, no, from the truth. From the truth. So if you do that as gently as I can, I will cut off your head. Because that's the responsibility of the elders. The truth is most important. third thing that we're supposed to do as leaders, and we know this, is that we guide. And it's not only just to care for the flock and protect the flock, but we don't just sit there with our swords and like, hope no wolves come. We lead the flock. We lead the church because there's a lot of different streams. Most of them are toilet water you can drink from into the clean, pure water of God's word and the truth. It's not about, we don't set boundaries and make all the decisions for you. In other words, to make a list of, here are the things you shouldn't do in the world out there, is just stupid, 
It's called legalism. And the reason why it's so stupid is because if I make 15 things, you'll find a 16th thing that's not on the list. Our responsibility as we lead and guide is to equip you to make decisions in all things and to proclaim that 1 Corinthians 10.31 says we can glorify God by how we eat and drink, which means we cannot glorify God in the same ways. And those are pretty basic level behaviors. So we are called to give you tools to equip you to discern what is most glorified in all situations and in all places with all decisions so that you can make a decision and not have to depend upon the shepherd to know you shouldn't walk towards that wolf. But one of the most important things we can do for the church is to remind you of our mission. And I don't mean the clever mission statements that churches put together. I mean what Matthew 28:19 says, Jesus speaking after he rose from the dead, telling his disciples what you're going to do now, and he says, "Go." Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's our responsibility to keep you on mission, to remind you that this is not all there is, that you have something to do in this world with as many days, months, or years that God has given you. And it's to go. We're not shepherds keeping flocks on the hills, getting fat and fed, and doing nothing but coming every other Sunday. We go on mission to declare the glories of God, the gospel truth that will transform this world, and we remind you, we push you, we say, you are a people on mission, you are going, you are moving, you are not standing still, or shouldn't be. And we need people to push us. Last couple We are leaders who serve. We recognize that our role is not to lord leadership, but it's to serve. Leading and loving Jesus means serving in humility like Jesus. Now, mind you, we get this mistaken a little bit. A lot of congregants, and I don't say a lot because people have done this to me necessarily, but I've seen pastors get just destroyed by the people in their church. Destroyed because they think he has all the answers. They think that he has to fix all their problems. They call him 24 hours a day, email him seven days a week. Fix me, help me, you're not doing this, whatever. Like he's some kind of slave. I've seen it. I'll tell you right now, I'm not your slave. Jim's not your slave. Chris, Mark, Aaron, we are slaves to Christ. He is our master that we might serve you. We serve, which means we do the hard work, we get dirty, we get down, we sacrifice, we do these things out of service to our master who we're enslaved to, not the other way around. John 13 is a beautiful passage. And John 13 shows the creator of the universe who came down in flesh in the most humble way you can imagine. And not only does he go to the cross prior to his arrest, He gathers with his disciples, who amongst them are discussing who's going to get the right hand in heaven and get all the accolades, and he's on his knees washing their feet. As he gets up, he says this, John 13, when he had washed their feet, verse 12, I believe, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the head of the table. He said, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord 
and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that also you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That is what the elders of a church understand their role is, as do the deacons of the church. We're servants. Does this mean I'm going to wash you all feet? Maybe. Not today. But maybe. I know what it does mean, though, is that I'm not afraid of your dirty, stinky, smelly feet. And I'm willing to cleanse and help you be cleansed and walk with you for as long as it takes in honor of my Lord. And lastly, and I think most importantly, we are leaders who love Jesus way more than we love you. We love Jesus way more than we love you. See, trusting leadership has something to do with your relationship with them. You have to know me a little bit. You have to know what we're like. I understand that. But trusting us has much more, I think, to do with my relationship with God and what you know about that. Leaders are not good or bad because they're friendly or they're cold or they're charismatic or they're not. They're educated or they're not. They're bold or they're meek. That's not how you determine a good leader, I think. Good leaders are those, when all is said and done, are submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and devoted to His glory in all things. I can trust a guy who actually believes that. I can follow a guy who actually believes that. Because any motivation outside the glory of God is in essence evil. It is. Dedication to the glory of God means that leaders do not make decisions based on what the approval or the disapproval of men will bring. And I will tell you, it's very hard. That's very hard. It's much easier to be popular than it is to be right. Much easier to be popular than it is to be right. I have friends in this church. Friends that were with me in the beginning. Friends who knew me before I was a pastor. I have family in this church. Do you know the dynamic that changes? With your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, you're now their pastor? And your friends, you go, look, I love you. Do you want me your friend right now or do you want me to be your pastor? I had those conversations. And when all said and done, I love Jesus more than I love that person. Which means I may actually tell them something that they don't want to hear. I have the wonderful, horrible privilege of sharing truth as gently as I can and knowing that they may not like it and they may not like me. But if you know, if you know that the lives of your leaders are dedicated and committed to the Lordship of Jesus and you see it in their lives and you see it in their families 
then you know that they'll lead their church well. And if not, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. If you can't trust that, you shouldn't be here. You should run from any church where that's not the truth. 2 Corinthians 5, 12 says it this way. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, or giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. There you go. question is, do you believe that? Because we have concluded this, the gospel, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those are what we have committed to. We are committed to giving you, an, I think, an example worthy of imitation protecting and to guiding and to serving and to loving Jesus more than I love you, which is exactly what you'll need sometimes. 1 Timothy 5.17 is a verse I've never really liked because of how it's been used. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I've had a problem with this verse because so many pastors use it to kind of justify what I think are exorbitant salaries and privileges because of double honor. And I think the leaders that you need, I I realize the Bible probably teaches that and means that in some sense, not in the sense it's been abused. But the leaders that you need, and this is how I've approached this verse, are the ones who recognize that their calling is actually a calling to be doubly dishonored in honor of the Lord. In the New Testament church, I see apostles rejoicing, not because the people are making a big deal about them, but because they're found worthy to be beaten and persecuted. God could rule his church in a different way, but he chose men like me and Jim and Mark and Aaron and Chris and our deacons. And that's the truth. And what I've shared with you is, is my heart as, as best I can. And we believe as elders that we've been called to lead this church. And we do believe in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. And if you can't submit to what I've just revealed our heart to be, and if you can't follow that, if you cannot trust that, then you shouldn't be here. And I realize saying that the next week it's going to be half as bit okay. I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. And so I'm going to close with a prayer. And it's really just a piece of Scripture. And this reveals as much as my heart as I, can, as I can get. And it's God's Word, so they're much more clear than mine would ever be. And this right here is what we truly believe. So that you know where we stand. And I pray that you'll stand with us but I'd rather have you stand with us than stay not standing with us, sucking all our energy and time. 
I'm going to read God's Word, and I'd ask that you would stand up with me. Candice will come up and play, and we'll end with a scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12. And I'll read it as a prayer, if you will. I'll begin this way. Father God, I submit to you on behalf of all the elders, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Jim, on behalf of Chris and Aaron and Mark, Father, you know our desires. I pray that the hearts of the people will be knit together and they will see the desires of our heart, Lord, which are expressed so clearly in Paul's writings. And let them know, Father, the decisions we make, though they pain us at times, and though we don't like them, that they are to honor you and to give you glory most of all. Your word says this, Lord. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh and so death is at work in us, but life in you. Amen. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne. 